for me, personally, one of the most comforting scriptures or promises that Jesus made in the New Testament is found in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. As believers, our responsibility, your responsibility, my responsibility is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in our own community and throughout the whole known world. And then when people come to faith, when God grants faith to those who hear the gospel, when they are born again, then our responsibility is then to teach them how to follow after Christ, to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So the Bible teaches that we can plant and we can water, but only God can give the increase. Only Jesus can build His church. We don't have the power to save people. But we have seen in the early part of the book of Acts, example after example of Jesus building His church. In fact, He was building it at an unprecedented rate. Uh, we saw on one day, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people be added to the church. Uh, then again, after Peter preaches, we see 2,000 people come to faith in Christ uh, at one time. In fact, when we finally get to chapter 5 where we are, uh, Luke just kind of gives up on counting. There's so many people who have come to faith in Christ, it's like, yeah, I, I can't even keep count. There's just a whole bunch of people that were coming to faith in Christ. That's an example of Christ building His church. But what we've also seen in the midst of this is that there is an enemy, and this enemy, at the same time that Christ is trying to build the church, he's trying to destroy it. And as he's trying to destroy it, specifically, he's trying to destroy the witness and to silence the witness of the church. And the first time that he tried to do this, attempted to silence the church, was when he tried to stir up uh, some level of, of a threat of persecution by but by, by kind of riling up the religious leaders against these new believers. The hope was that if they could get them stirred up enough and the threats could be serious enough, that what would ultimately happen is that they would be silenced for fear of being imprisoned or beaten or even worse, their lives being taken. But we saw that that approach didn't work. It didn't work because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they loved Christ more than they love their own personal well-being. So they continued to share the gospel. Well, now in chapter 5, we see a second approach of the devil. Instead of trying to attack from the outside, they now begin to attack on the inside. Instead of trying to attack on the outside through threats of persecution, now he begins to, to attack the church inwardly through the threat of hidden sin within the members of the church. Interesting thing, Dan preached last week from the book of Joshua and the story of Achan. And what's interesting about that story is it really is parallel, the Old Testament parallel story to the New Testament story that we're studying today, the story about Ananias and Sapphira. There's a lot of similarities between the two. In fact, both of them begin the same. In the book of Joshua, God's people were set apart for a particular mission, and they were on that mission, and everything was going splendidly well for the first six chapters. Even when they're being attacked by the enemies, their progress continues. It's not until chapter 7, when God's people begin to deal with their own hidden and private sin, that, that all of a sudden the mission begins to not move, well, uh, move forward the way that it ought to. Well, here in the book of Acts, we see the same thing. Up to this point, God has given them a mission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. And so far, they've been doing just that. It's been going swimmingly until they get to chapter 5. And again, they face the same problem, sin from within.
hidden sin within their particular ranks. And so both of them begin the same. Unfortunately, both of them end the same. In the story of Achan, you saw that God brings about this swift judgment on him. And what happens to him? He's stoned and he's burned. And now here we see the same type of sin. And when now Ananias and Sapphira are going to be confronted, they're going to be immediately judged by God, put to death. And the Bible says that when they're confronted, they breathe their very last breath. Now, here's the difficulty. When we read passages like this, it's just hard for us to know what in the world we do with it. Because the truth is, if we're going to at least attempt to be honest, what happens within this chapter almost doesn't seem as though it's God. It seems so unlike God. When we read and we look at this swift and severe judgment of God, we, we think that it seems to be inconsistent. The, the judgment seems to be so harsh. There seems to be no patience that God shows through the course of the whole story. There, there seems to be no second chance, no hope of redemption. And that's the message of the gospel is, is that there's hope that there's a second chance. And so I think the problem that we make in addressing passages like this is we have a tendency to compartmentalize in what we're reading what is of God and what is it not, right? So everything up to this point, it's easy to see how it was God. God has given people second chances. The very people that crucified Christ, we're seeing some of them come to faith in Christ. We seek second chances. We see grace. We see mercy. And we classify all that as what? Of God. And we get to this chapter, and we see the severe, swift, violent, and permanent judgment of God, and we tend to think that this was not God. But what the Bible's teaching us, Luke is teaching us, is God's grace and mercy is of God, just like the righteous judgment of God is of God. The question, though, is, is what are we supposed to understand from it? What are we, what are we supposed to make of all of this? How are we to understand God's swift judgment of death upon these two early believers in the church? And that's what I want to point out. These are not lost people. These are, from everything we can tell, believers who have tasted of the grace and the mercy of God. Yet God, in the midst of their sin, they do something to where God instantaneously judges them and puts them to death. How do we understand it? Two things I think we want to see today. The first thing is, and very simple, is we have to figure out what happened. What happened? And then the second thing is, what does it mean? What, what, what does it mean to us? So first thing, what, what happened? So what did Ananias and Sapphira do to, to, to provoke this kind of judgment from God? What was it that God ultimately did? And look at verse 1. The Bible says, he says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So we understand whenever we're reading this, context is always king. We have to understand what's happening around it to understand what's happening here. And when we look back to the previous chapter, the very end of chapter 4, there was a man by the name of Barnabas. And Barnabas, his name literally meant son of encouragement, and he lived up to that name. He owned a piece of property, he took it, he sold it, and he took all the money that he made from, from it and he laid it at the, hand, at the feet of the apostles, which means that he entrusted it to the apostles to distribute it 
to meet all the needs in that early church, and there were a lot of needs. And so, guess what? He kind of gets this name where people begin to refer to him as Barnabas, the son of encouragement, because of the act of what he ultimately did. Well, now what we find in the beginning of chapter 5, people are inspired by Barnabas and his acts. Ananias and Sapphira seem to be inspired by what he did, and they follow suit. They follow his example. Well, almost they follow his example. They, too, have a piece of land. They sell it, and they receive the money with the intent of giving all of it over to the church. But instead of giving all of it over to the apostles to distribute it, to meet those needs, they retain some of it to themselves. They keep some of it. Now, the first thing we need to understand is it wasn't wrong for them to keep a portion of what it was that they sold. Two weeks ago, we talked about this, that the early church, even though people have suggested this, was not some early form of socialism or communism. They weren't living in some huge community where nobody owned anything. Everybody still owned homes. People owned their own possessions. In fact, what they would do is when they gave, it was completely and utterly voluntary, it was not coerced. It was not forced. It was something that they would ultimately do. And so what, what, what Peter actually says in this text, he asks him, he says, hey, after he goes, in verse 4, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, I don't know why you felt like you had to do anything. This was yours to begin with. You could do with it whatever you wanted. The land was yours. Uh, this, that after you sold it, the money was yours. You could do with it whatever you ultimately wanted to do. So what was the problem? Well, in verse 4, it gives us a hint. He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So the best that we can tell that what they were going to do is the intent and possibly what they even pledged was that they would take all of the money from the sale of this piece of property and they were going to give it to the apostles to distribute but instead of giving all of it, they took some of it to themselves, which in and of itself, again, is not wrong. The problem, however, is that they lied. When they were asked, is this all of the money that you got from this particular possession? Their answer was yes. So, so here's kind of how it may have gone down. I don't know this for sure, but maybe they had the right intentions to begin with. Hey, honey, we got that piece of property. We don't need it. Let's sell it. Man, Barnabas really inspired me. They sell it. They get cash from it. And then I don't know if you've ever done this with your tithe check, but you look at it and you're like, honey, this is a lot of money. <laughs> and, and, and they begin to count and they go, I mean, this is a considerable sum. How much did we say we'd give? We, honey, we said we'd give all of it. All of it? Really? You know, we could probably use this. I haven't been on a vacation for a while, and, you know, there's a leak in the roof, and a lot of things are going on. What, you think it would be okay if maybe we just gave part of it? Well, I think it's okay. I think it's ours to begin with. It's not a problem for us to be able to keep it back. Yeah, but if we, if we don't give it all, then we're not going to look as good as Barnabas does. We're not going to look as grateful, and they're not going to give us this really cool nickname. So here's the interesting thing. As Ananias' name means gracious, and, and, and Sapphira's name means beautiful, but what they do here is neither gracious nor beautiful. What they do in the sin is that they ultimately lie. And this isn't just kind of an oversight of accounting. This is something that they got together with knowledge and actually planned out. It was a plan to deceive the apostles in the church. And then the underlining, the more specific sin is the sin of hypocrisy. Have you ever heard that sin? Or have you ever heard of that sin, the sin of hypocrisy? You have if you've ever interacted with lost people, right? If you ever shared the gospel, invited them to church, somebody would sit back and say, inevitably, hey, I, you know, a church isn't really for me. It's just full of hypocrites. And I don't know how you respond to that. I don't know if you're offended. No, you are not. I always go, ah, man, it is. 
It is full of hypocrites, and we have got room for one more if you want to come, right? So if you want to come, come, come on. And so there's this idea and there's this fear of us to be identified as a hypocrite. What do we mean by hypocrisy? I think we know what it means, but let me define it for you. It says it, it's the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. So it's trying to, here's the key, it's trying to look a certain way. The emphasis is on the way you look, not on what you are. The emphasis is on looking a certain way, not being a certain way. And in this particular case, what they were doing is they wanted to give the appearance that they were immensely giving and gracious without actually being gracious and giving. Does, does that make sense? So they want the appearance of it. They, they just don't care to actually be it. That, so that's the ultimate emphasis. Now, what's interesting to me here is that this, this sin of hypocrisy is clearly serious, and it's a sin, it appears to be, against, against Peter and against the church. But Peter doesn't view it that way. See, they did sin against them. They were the ones that they were trying to deceive. They were the ones that they were sinning against. They were the ones they were lying to. But when Peter confronts them in their sin, he doesn't even mention the fact that he was sinned against. He doesn't even mention the fact that they, that, that they sinned against the church. That's how we do sometimes. We, we sit back and we go, you know what, man, you really hurt me. And now I need to decide how I'm going to be able to respond to you. Peter understands that there's something much bigger than his hurt feelings and for him being sinned against, and that is that God had been sinned against. And so he doesn't say, hey, you've sinned against me, you've sinned against the church. Instead, he, he, he says in verse 3, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then again, he goes on in verse 4, and he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Why? What is it about this sin of hypocrisy that is so directly directed at God and more specifically a sin against the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me give you just two ideas here. I think there might be many, but let me just give you two ideas. I think number one is that all sin is ultimately against God. We do understand that, right? So if I sin against you, yes, I'm sinning against you, but ultimately who is that against? It's, it's against God. That's why all sin is, is serious. Uh, David understood this. David, a man after God's own heart, fell into some very deep, dark sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, sinned against her. He killed Uriah to try to, to cover up his sin. Do you, you remember this story? And in Psalm 51, when he's broken and he's repentant, what does he say to God? He calls out to him and he says, in Psalm 51, 4, against you and you alone have I sinned against. Now, did he not sin against these other people? I think Uriah would object. He was murdered by him, Right? But what is he ultimately saying? He's saying, ultimately, all of my sin, the problem that I have is not so much that I'm going to pay the consequences of sinning against somebody else around me, a family member, a friend, or whoever it is. My problem is that I've sinned against a holy God. My problem is not what somebody else will think or what somebody else will do if I sin against them. The problem is what God thinks about what I did and what God will do because of what I've ultimately sinned against him. This is, this is in, in counseling. This is like counseling one-on-one. And you don't have to be a pastor to do this. I'm sure many of you have done it as well, where, where even today, there, there, you might be here today, and you might be here because you blew it. And, and I want to let you know you're in good company because everyone here has blown it. And we know what that's like, to blow it time and time and time again. And maybe you're here today because you're blowing it. You know that there are going to be some very sincere, serious consequences because of your sin. 
Maybe you've sinned against your wife or against your children, and now you're here because really what you want to do is you want God to save you from the consequences of your sin. And you're sitting back and go, I don't want to lose my wife, and I don't want to lose my kids, and I don't want to lose whoever. And there's a part of that that we want to come around you and go, hey, we get that. We don't want you to lose your marriage either or your kids or your job. We don't want to lose any of that. But there has to be a part in that conversation that sits there and goes, but you're missing the point. Your greatest problem is not how your wife is going to respond or what she is going to do or how your children, what they think or how they're going to respond. Your problem is what God thinks about your sin because your sin is primarily against him. So when he says that you've lied against God, it's because ultimately, even if we lie to one another, our problem is it's ultimately a sin against God. So in a broad sense, All sin is against God, but hypocrisy is specifically directed towards the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me explain this. We believe one God, three persons. Amen? Can anybody explain that to me? No, thank you. All right. And so we just know that's what the Bible teaches. In fact, this is a major doctrine that shows that the Holy Spirit is God. The word God and the Holy Spirit are used interchangeably in between the two. But why is it specifically against the Holy Spirit? Think for a moment. What's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit? Yes, to to save us and to regenerate us, to make us new, new creatures in Christ. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? But it's also to continue to transform us in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what many of you are doing. You're born again, but you're being sanctified, progressively sanctified. Every time you hear the word of God, the Holy Spirit, and you submit to it, the Holy Spirit's working on you. He's convicting you. He's changing you. He's illuminating the word of God to you. You're submitting your way to Christ, and he's bringing about the change in you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, stop and think about the sin of hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy is just the opposite of what I just explained. The sin of hypocrisy says, I really don't care to change. I just want to look good. And so what I'm going to do is I'm I'm going to look as though I've submitted myself to God. I'm going to look as though I've, I've committed to the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit has actually worked in my life, but I'm not doing it so that God would be glorified. I'm doing it so that I would receive the glory of those around you. This is, in essence, what we call false advertising, Right? You know what a false advertising is? This is one of those asks, you, the person, when, when you and I are pretending to be something that we're not in order to get the approval of other people, when we have no intention to actually strive to be that very thing, that's false advertising. Let's say, look who I am, and the truth of the matter is we're not who we are suggesting that we are. And Jesus, some of his strongest rebukes in all of the word of God is towards the religious leaders who he calls hypocrites, Right? And one of the examples of his judgment is with the, the, the fig tree. Do you remember this? He's moving from one place to another during his ministry and is during his week there in, in, in Jerusalem. And as a way, he sees a, he sees a fig tree along the way. Do you remember this? And he sees it, and it has leaves all over it. And, and the reason those leaves are significant is because the fig trees in Palestine at that time and even today, they begin to bear fruit before they begin to bear their leaves. When the leaves begin to be produced, you know that there's going to be figs on that tree. It's kind of declaring, hey, you're ready for fruit to be on my tree. When Jesus goes to the tree, there's leaves, but there's no fruit. How does Jesus respond to this? He curses it. Why? It's false advertising. It's ultimately saying, hey, listen, I've got all the fruit in the world. Why don't you come and enjoy? He gets there. There's no fruit at all. 
This is how God approaches this sin of hypocrisy. There's something pugnacious about it. It's something that, 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 reeks, that has a stench in the nostrils of God, not only because in general it's against him, but it's specifically a sin against the Holy Spirit because you were claiming to be something and claiming to have done something by submitting to the Holy Spirit, which is just not true in order for you to receive the glory of God rather than for him to receive the glory. So this is what they did. This is what God, this is why God judges them so swiftly and so harshly, this sin. They're more interested in, in what they look like than what they actually are. Now the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean? Three things. What does it mean? I know that surprises you that I have three things. First of all, God is fully aware of our sin. Okay, so this is where we land, Okay. And this is where, I already had one walk out. This is where we might have a few more. It's okay. We'll just assume that it's because you love me. Um, God is fully aware of our sin. You know, we may be able to play, we may be really tremendous actors and really begin to play a role and begin to play a part that we're able to fool everybody else into thinking that we are something that we are not. The teaching in this text is you can never and will never fool God. You will never, nor can you, fool God. You know, it's terrifying to me as even sermon prep that there are going to be people in this service and in the next service who are living this very life. That, that you are here and you have been a master of getting everybody around you to think that you're a good guy or you're a good woman or you're a God-fearing individual. And you become so good at it that it's almost as though you know exactly what to say not to draw any attention to yourself. You know exactly what to say to make sure to keep up appearances without raising any kind of suspicion. If people around you were to sit there and say, this is a good, godly man, from all outward appearances you are, but here's the reality. There are some men, some women, and some children in this place that are living a double life and that when nobody else is watching, whether it be in your office alone, in home alone, when nobody is watching, when nobody can hear what's going on, you live completely a different life than the one that you want everybody to think that you are living. And you can fool your wife, and you can fool your, your spouse, your husband, and you can fool your kids, you can fool your pastors. I've been fooled many a times by sitting, sitting down with somebody and them telling me everything that they need to, that, that they think that I wanted to be able to hear, and I'm fooled. But you know what it ultimately does? I'm taking the approach of Peter. It doesn't matter whether I'm fooled or your spouse is fooled or your kids are fooled, because God can never, ever be fooled. He sees your sin. And, and, and let me say, you know, growing up, I had, a, I had a friend, I know that's surprising, I had a friend by the name of Daryl Mayo, and he was my best buddy. Do you remember your best buddy growing up as, your, as a kid? Uh, usually you had the most fun with them, but you also got in the most trouble with them, right? And Daryl Mayo was that guy, and we had a, we had a little hideout. Now, I'm not a builder. I'm not very good with things. And uh, my dad was real busy, and so he didn't really build things for us either. So we had to do a makeshift clubhouse. Our clubhouse, our secret spot where we gathered together to talk, was, was a bush. 
basically. It was the, the hedges in front of the house. I mean, some of you probably have it. And we're like, hey, nobody can see us here. Nobody can hear us here. So we would go by there. We'd walk up to the Jiffy store, right? Anyone still call it the Jiffy store, right? And so we'd go up to the Jiffy store or the 7-Eleven or whatever it was, and we'd come back with our Mountain Dew and our Doritos, and we'd sit back there, and we would just pontificate on the meaning of life. We would talk about all that we wanted to do, and we would talk about what, we, what our intents were against Miss Blackman's cat down the street and what it would look like with a mohawk, and we would think about Mr. Johnson down the street who had the little gnomes and what would it look like if we put little smiley faces on it. And, and, and this, is where, this is where just the evil of two young boys being hidden in silence began to really culminate. And, and, and I remember, though, I couldn't figure this out for the life of me for some time, and that is right after our conspiring, I would, that night, my, my, my mom would not just come out and, and kind of ruin my plans and reveal my plans. She'd be very subtle about it. She would say things like, here, would you like some more peas, honey? That's good. Oh, and by the way, did I mention that Miss Blackman really loves her cat and would really hate for anything to ever happen to it? That would be just a bad thing. And, you know, Mr. Johnson, his gnomes, you know he loves those gnomes. He got them from Holland or wherever they're from. And, and, uh, and, and it would just really be bad if anything ever happened to them. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, but how do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and I remember going through this all the time. And, and it wasn't, I remember thinking that my mom was omniscient. Like she, meaning she knows everything, all right? So, so she, she, I, I figured that. But then I realized, and I finally put two and two together, that my little secret spot was right underneath the window to the kitchen where my wife's, or my wife, my, my, that's messed up. My, my mom <laughs> spent almost all of her time. So everything we were saying, she didn't even have to peer. She's just listening and just, I mean, she's, she's making peas. I don't think that's what you do, but you, whatever, you're making peas, and she's listening to all of this. And what is the point? The point is, is that God's at the window. There's nothing said. There's nothing thought. There's nothing intended that God doesn't know about. That that, that we're spending all of our time to try to look a certain way and to kind of convey a certain thing. And God's sitting back going, why are you even worried about the rest of them? I'm the one who matters and I know it all. And what he knows is, is not only what we're doing, but here's another thing. He knows the intent of everything that we do. The intent of everything that we do. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, all the ways of men are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his motives. Psalms chapter 44, verse 21 says, would not God discover this, for he knows the secrets of the heart. Now, let me, let me make this statement. He knows what we do. He knows what we don't do. He knows our motivations of why we do it, which is a whole another level of conviction. But here's what I want to make sure that you understand. Doing something that you don't feel like doing is not necessarily hypocrisy. I just want to hit this point before we move on. And, 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 and this is what I get a lot of times, surprisingly. I, I've, I've had friends in my life that will say, well, I'm not going to come to church because I just don't, I don't feel like going to church. And I'm not going to be a hypocrite like the rest of those hypocrites down there. Or, you know, I, I'm not going to give because the truth of the matter is I can't give with joy. So I'm not going to give at all because, you know, I'm not going to be a hypocrite and end up giving and end up being a hypocrite. Not everything you do that you don't feel like doing is hypocrisy. Do you understand? In other words, can you imagine, I know this is hard to believe, sometimes I come to church and I'm not in the greatest mood. That might be hard for you to believe. But sometimes, sometimes, rarely, 
I'm in such a bad mood from whatever happened in the week, I don't even want to be here, okay? Now, don't tell anybody that, all right? But just, just sometimes I'm just sitting. Now, what if I came in and I wore that attitude on my shoulder? How you doing this? Uh, I'm doing horrible. Thanks for asking, man. You know, because people get on to people all the time. They were like, hey, somebody comes up to you. How, how are you? You're like, I'm doing fine. You know, and then they get on to you because they say, you're lying. You're being a hypocrite. No, you keep saying I'm fine. Here's why. Because the point is, when somebody comes up to you and they go, how are you doing? There is a part of you that understands that you want to be encouragement to that person and not be a discouragement to that person. There's a part of you who knows that coming to church is the right thing to do, even though you, 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 you don't maybe at that point want to come. You come. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. That makes you an obedient believer who is putting their flesh to death. Does that make sense? I don't want to do this, but I know that's my flesh. What I really want to do is I want God to be glorified because I know this is the right thing to do. That is completely different than coming and giving all to be able to keep up appearances with no intention or desire to obey God at all. Those are the differences between the two. So we see this. We see that God is fully aware of our sin. Number two, God has the right to judge how and when as he pleases. It's amazing to me how many of us seem to be the judge of God on how he chooses to be able to handle things. Whether it's not harsh enough or whether it's too harsh. And the bottom line is he's God and you and I are not. He knows all things and he has the right as the creator God to be able to judge when and where and how he decides that he ultimately wants to judge. Are are, are we in agreement with this? And so, so what some have done, even some commentators have looked at this particular passage, and they, they feel like they have to bail God out. They come and they say, well, you know, it really wasn't God's fault. This isn't what God would have intended to be able to do. This was really all Peter's fault. Because what Peter did, you know he's a guy that throws off the cuff. He says things that he shouldn't do, does things he shouldn't do. I mean, this is the guy who rebuked Jesus. He's the guy that cut off a, a Roman soldier's ear because he's just that kind of spontaneous uncontrolled type guy will hear what he did is he just he just calls out this 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 curse on these poor people and they end up dying but the only reason that god does it and follows along with it is because he knows that he has to kind of uh, authenticate the ministry of peter so the gospel will go forth and people will believe that this is a ministry of god so god didn't really want to do it now how in the world do you get that out of the text That's just reading, that's making God like who we are. The best understanding of this text is that God took this sin seriously and he judged them and this was all about what God would ultimately want to do. But the question still comes about, why isn't that God didn't give him a second chance? Why didn't he give Ananias a second chance at this point? Why did the judgment come so swiftly and promptly? Let me give you two possible ideas here. We're, We're almost to the end, even though we have one more point after this. Okay, we're not almost done. So second, second here's, the, here's the idea. First of all, I think the reason why he, 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 it's so harsh is because they sin with knowledge. You and I like to say all the time, well, all sin is the same, you know? I mean, it's all the same. It's no big deal. Same consequence. And at one level, we know that's true, right? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, whether you've lied or whether you've murdered somebody, that is sin that is sufficient for you and I to be judged by God and eternity in hell. Would we all agree with that? But we also know that God does say that there are some sins that he takes more seriously and is more apt to, to respond to in a disciplinary way than what others might be. 
And one of those areas is it was whether we sin in ignorance or whether we sin in knowledge. You and I probably sin in ignorance all the way through the day, right? We do things that we're just not aware of that are of God. And I think that you would admit that is completely different than the times that you and I know very firmly in our mind and our heart that what we are doing is wrong and you and I choose to disobey God anyway. But that is the very key to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy assumes that you know what is right and wrong. They knew that it was wrong to lie and to deceive, but yet they did it anyway. So the reason for the severe judgment or discipline on this particular couple is because they sinned with knowledge. But the second reason is because they sinned with presumption. Look at verse 9 for a moment. After Peter confronted Sapphira and he asked if, if she had sold the property for a specific amount, uh, she said, how, or he said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? You know what they're doing? They're, they're testing the spirit. How is she testing the spirit? They wanted to see just how far they could go in sin before God would ultimately respond. You know, the Bible teaches us that God is long-suffering, but yet it's hard to see any long-suffering in the text. In fact, we love to be able to quote from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what he's saying is, he says, God doesn't immediately judge most people. Would, would you agree? Even in the garden. He says, on the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. They die spiritually, but they don't die physically. God allows them time. What is it? That's his grace and his mercy to repent and to be made right with God. Yes? And so you and I know that God usually works in this way. Very rarely does he immediately discipline us when we end up doing something wrong. But it's one thing for us to be able to revel in him and being slow to anger and being merciful for us. It's us to presume. It's different for us to presume upon it. To think that because God is long-suffering, that he will always be long-suffering in the sin that I am temporarily committing, that I am presently committing. To sit back and to say, you know what? It doesn't matter. God's got bigger fish to fry. This isn't that big of a deal. I'll just sin this sin. And guess what? God is going to be good to be able to just turn and bat an eye. He's long-suffering. He'll give me a second chance. By the way, we use that term all the time. You know, the phrases drive me nuts that people use. in the church. And it's not you. It's me. Okay? It's not you. It's me. But this whole God is the God of the second chance, Right? I, I, I get what that means. Let me, let me explain wh- where I think that that is right. It is right if it is something that you are going to share with somebody who has blown it and has repented before God. If they've come before God and they've repented and they say, you know, I have completely blown it. Brother, I am completely, I've completely sinned against God and I, I know that, that, that this is wrong. You want to come beside that person and say, you know what? God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. This isn't the end for you, brother. This isn't the end for you, sister. God's got more for you beyond this. He's not going to leave you in this pit. He's going to work in you and change you, and he's got a plan for you. Great. What is not good is for you and I to think that this theological principle that God will give me a second chance is somehow comfort for us to continue in our sin. And even if we do get caught, that God is going to give us a second chance. There was no second chance for these folks. They sinned. God immediately, immediately judged them. What does that mean? It means that if you're sitting here this morning and you know that you're in sin, 
and you think that just somehow, some way, God's going to give you a little bit more time, or you're going to wait to repent in a week or two weeks or in a year or in 10 years, or when you get into a different stage of life, you are not assured of that. You are not assured of the next hour. You are not assured of the next day. God has the right to judge how he wants and when he wants. Point of the passage. Let me say one more thing, and I'm going to ask Nick to come at this time. The last thing is God's discipline is an act of his grace. God's discipline is an act of his grace. You sit back and go, how in the world is that the act of his grace? Did you notice the response of the people around Ananias and Sapphira when they were put to death? Did it have an impact on them, an immediate impact on them? If, if you look for a moment, you, you, you'll see here in verse 5, the Bible says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great, what? Fear came upon all who heard of it. Then verses 10 and 11, immediately she, 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 fell, down, she fell down at his feet, and she breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her aside, her husband. And great, what? Fear came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard of these things. Mercy Hill needs to be a church of great fear of God. I don't mean the type of fear where we're biting our nails, thinking that he's going to strike us dead, but the type of holy fear that has a high respect and a clarity of know who it is that we are serving, that it is a holy God that ought not to be trifled with when it comes to sin that takes sin very seriously, especially that sin that we're, that we're more about the way we look than what we ultimately are, allowing the Holy Spirit to be able to have his way inside of us. Even in the next section, in verses 12, uh, following in verse 16, the Bible says, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. They were, had such a high view of fear that this incident, because they were struck dead, they, they all of a sudden sat back and go, okay, you know what? I know people are being healed, but I don't want to get struck dead either. Hey, you guys are great. Let me stay out here for a little while. There was an instance of this fear. So notice this. Seeing the, how God deals with sin with them allows the rest time to do what? Straighten up. Straighten up. It's kind of like, you know, eating with your kids at the table, right? I remember growing up, all of us, and, and for us at the table, man, I mean, we were crazy at the table, but there was only a limit that my parents would allow us to be able to go, my dad. And so the way that you knew that the limit had had is he would stand up and he would grab somebody by the ear and he would walk them to a different room. Uh, I don't know if you can do that anymore, but uh, it was a different time. And so we were all guilty, but whoever was most guilty, my dad would go ahead, and this, on this one occasion, he would go, grab him by the ear, said, come with me. And of course, you have a tendency to go when somebody has your ear. And uh, so he goes with them, goes to the back, comes back. And when he comes back, everybody at the table, sitting straight up, eating properly, making sure their elbows off the table, only talking when spoken to. Why is that? It was an act of grace. We weren't punished, but because of the, the, the illustration of that justice that was being done, which was right and being poured out on that poor brother, we knew that there were things not right, and we knew we didn't want to experience the same exact thing. Isn't this a picture of the gospel as well? And this is a picture of the gospel, that when you and I are struggling with sin, that what we do is we look at the cross. We look at the cross and we're reminded 
that this was the punishment, the righteous punishment of God on the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. It wasn't even for his sin. It was for our sin. And when we realize that the wrath of God was poured out him, there's something in us that wants us to what? Straighten up. And it's not straight enough to try to be received by him. It's for us to understand that this is a holy God to be served. And this is not a holy God to be taken advantage of. That he does, that I don't exist for, that he doesn't exist for me in, in a sense, but I exist for him to be able to glorify him. He's not some, some Santa Claus or something just to be, there has to be a seriousness in your Christian walk and in my Christian life and about the sin that we have. And so what do we do with all this? Let me, let me just encourage you not to presume upon the grace of God. Not to presume upon the time that you have. Not to presume that whatever sin that you're dealing with and you're trying to keep it away. You know, I, I, could, I could see people this morning really come to the point where they just sat there and said, you know, I'm not born again. My sin is, and, and my shame is, everybody in my family thinks I'm born again and that I'm right with God. And the truth is, if I were to die, I'd bust hell wide open. But nobody knows that except for me. Well, guess what? Somebody else knows that it's God. What I would encourage you to do is not presume upon the Lord, but to be able to repent, call out for mercy to him. Men and women and children, you can start playing, brother. If, 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 if you're struggling with secret sin, just call out to God for his grace, for his mercy. Let go of that display. Get help from somebody. Go to a brother in Christ. Go to a sister in Christ. Go to a friend in a small group. Set up an appointment with a pastor. Just drag, you know, just grab him and go, man, there's a secret sin, and the truth of the matter is nobody else knows, but God does. I gotta get this right. God is not to be trifled with. He is gracious, he has mercy, and he will forgive you. He even gives pictures like this in the Bible to drive us and to give us an example of why we need to lean and press into him. Will you do that this morning? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you. God, help us to respond. Tough message. I hope, though, that it's been clear for us of what the problem was and what it ultimately means. God, would you work amongst us? Have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand. I'm going to be down here if you want prayer, if you want to come to the altar, pray. But do business with God wherever you are this morning.